Hello, I'm Rachel Bavin from the Oncology Network. I'm delighted to share the first part of a new episode of the Oncology Journal Club podcast with you. Today's episode is a review of the biggest practice changes in 2023. With a trans-Tasman lens, our new host team includes Craig Underhill, Kate Clark, and Chris Jackson. Professor Craig Underhill is a medical oncologist practicing in Albury, Wodonga. He is the VCCC Regional Oncology Lead and a renowned champion of telehealth and teletrials. Dr. Kate Clark is a proud New Zealander. Her medical oncology practice focuses on treating GI and breast cancers with an emphasis on patient advocacy and equity. Professor Chris Jackson is Professor of Medical Oncology at the University of Utago, Dunedin, who holds both national and international roles in the management of colorectal cancer. Regular listeners will be familiar with our format. The hosts will present main papers or interviews with guests alongside some quick bites. Today's guests are Professor Chris Booth and Associate Professor Kate Burberry. Please see the show notes on www.oncologynetwork.com.au for papers, links and full bios. We hope you enjoy the return of the OJC. Don't forget to listen to part two. This is Rachel Bavin and this is the Oncology Journal Club podcast. Kia ora, g'day, kia ora. Who's going to say g'day, 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 but I thought that's probably not appropriate. So welcome everybody to a very special edition OJC Across the Ditch or perhaps OJC Three Islands. It's a great pleasure to welcome two very special guests to the OJC microphone, Dr. Kate Clark from Windy Wellington and Professor Christopher Jackson from Dunedin. So welcome to you both. G'day, Kate. Oh, thank you, Craig. Chris is no stranger to me, having been friends since far too long to remember now. Don't say it, Kate. Don't say the year. Don't say the year. <laughs> Pre-COVID anyway. Pre-COVID. And Kate, you're a, Kate's a medical oncologist in Wellington? Yeah. Jobbing medical oncologist in Wellington. So Chris and Kate have known each other for a few years. Kate and I met on a fundraiser for the AGITG. It was a special trek across the mountains of the South Island in New Zealand. It was a great time. And the first time we've seen each other since because of COVID lockdowns was at the AGRTG conference, a very successful conference in Christchurch a few weeks ago. And we said, you know what, we should do a special podcast. So Sweet. You know, and that's good. She's very excited. You can, you can see. Yeah. yeah. Aren't we kakadooing together as well? <laughs> we hopefully will be kakadooing next year. So the AGRTG is doing another fundraiser for the what they call it Gutsy Challenge. So it's their main fundraiser for the year. And it's in Kakadoo in June 2024. Everyone have a look at the AGRTG website. It's really fantastic. It's a holiday, but you're also raising money for a very noble cause at the same time. You know, it's a really nice plug for the Gutsy Challenge there, Craig. But frankly, I think that it's a dangerous plug because I think that you could potentially decimate the population of medical oncologists in New Zealand because everyone knows that Australia <laughs> is full of lethal insects. <laughs> it will be not the Kakadu tour, but it'll be the killer tour. And it's far more sensible to have a Gutsy Challenge in a lovely place like New Zealand where your chances of dying are far less. We've got creatures such as kiwis, possibly Tuatara and Kakapo, or the now world-famous Pūtikitiki. Thank you very much, John Oliver, for promoting our native birds. They sound very dangerous, but... Oh, we've got no lethal spiders in New Zealand. Come on, man. 
Yeah, I think kakadu has spiders, probably has, I'm sure it has snakes, maybe a saltwater crocodile, a freshwater crocodile or two, but that's okay. We, you know, you go for a really nice walk and then you glamp at night and get some nice food and wine and it's a good crack. And you don't have to be the fastest. You just have to be faster than Craig. Yeah, so in terms of the, you know, danger. <laughs> <laughs> we let others go ahead. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so the cardiovascular risk is low. That's good to know. Yeah. All right. So this is a similar format. So we'll each do a few papers. And I just want to acknowledge and pay tribute to our founding podcasters, Eva Segalov and Hans Brennan, who are now both based in Europe. And thanks to everybody who's reached out to us too, urging us to do another podcast. It's been really wonderful. We hope that this one will be successful and please give us feedback if you have suggestions. So let's get into it. I'm going to do the first one. We have a special segment called Blow Your Own Trumpet. So this is actually a paper where I was the co-author, but I'm actually going to talk to the lead author. And now we're going to Craig's interview with Kate Burberry. It is an absolute pleasure to welcome Associate Professor Kate Burberry onto the podcast to discuss, and I know I'm conflicted, but one of the potential practice changes in medical oncology for this year. Kate is the Executive Director of Digital and Healthcare Innovations and a consultant hematologist at Peter McCallum in Melbourne. Thanks for coming on, Kate. It's a pleasure and thanks for having me, Craig. Wonderful. So let's get into it. But tell us some of the about the design and about how this trial was conducted, Kate. Yeah, thanks, Craig. The concept of the study is really coined out of the fact that patients with cancer have high rates of clots or or thromboembolism. And, and in fact, we know that thromboembolism is the second biggest killer for our patients with cancer, second only behind the cancer itself. So that's really what underpinned the concept of the study. The biggest challenge on a practical front is that the risk isn't the same for all patients, nor is it the same for all patients over time. So we needed a better way of being able to stratify risk both across patient populations, but also at an individual patient level as they went through their therapy for their cancer. So that was the second biggest concept behind the trial design. So essentially to try and prevent clots by applying appropriate clot preventing therapy, but a better way of risk stratifying them. And so this study tested both the potency of the risk score and then if we successfully identified high versus low risk of clots, could we mitigate that risk by applying appropriate clot preventing therapy, which on this occasion was a very familiar drug of low molecular weight, heparin or clexane. The third aspect of the study, though, which is something that is close or near dear to Craig and my heart, was actually being able to uh, deploy trials outside of the major metropolitan centres. So a really fundamental part of this trial design was to have a networked or decentralised teletrial model to allow patients from regional rural centres to be recruited to the study without having to travel to metropolitan Melbourne, but rather have their care delivered at home. Can you tell me the high-level results Absolutely. So what we did is we took a cohort of patients with cancer and used the risk score to stratify them from low to high risk. That was the most important measure. We had 200 patients in the high risk and a bit over 100 patients in the low risk. We then took the high risk population and randomised them to receive drug or not receive drug at a one-to-one ratio, so half and half. And of those patients that were recruited, that half between gastrointestinal and half between lung cancer, And in those patients that were high risk, 
of those that received the clot-preventing therapy, the rates of thromboembolism were reduced from 23% down to 8%. So from a bit over one in five or one in four patients predicted to be at risk of clot and actually went on to have a clot and took it down to one in 10 by applying clot-preventing therapy. And more importantly, what we took the rates of clots in the high-risk group down to that that was equivalent to the low-risk group. So effectively took them from a high rate of clotting down to a low rate of clotting just by applying clot-preventing therapy. Yeah, great. So that was the primary outcome of preventing thromboembolism at the 180-day mark. And then the secondary endpoints were bleeding survival risk model validation. So the bleeding, there was no – it seemed to be a safe intervention. We always worry about giving – this was in lung and GI patients, and in particular the GI patients because of the mucosal involvement potentially. We worry about that, but we didn't see that as an issue. No, that's exactly right, Craig. And in fact, probably the biggest barrier to applying clot-preventing therapy is that fear of bleeding risk. But in fact, the rates of bleeding were low across and the same across all the groups. So what we showed is not only were they at a low rate, 2%, but in fact it was no different whether you're low-risk, high-risk receiving or not receiving the clot-preventing therapy, the rates of bleeding were exactly the same. Yeah. And then survival is the secondary endpoint. So this is quite intriguing. So does reducing clots lead to better survival? Yeah, correct. And although it wasn't powered to demonstrate a survival benefit, we also have to acknowledge that particularly patients with lung cancer have a reduced survival. So it needs to go for an extended period of time and have the numbers, but there was certainly a trend for a survival improvement in those that were applied clot-preventing therapy and perhaps a hint of it being a survival benefit independent of preventing clots on their own. One of the challenges is did they die because of the presence of clots versus did they die because of a certain biology that both provokes clots as well as poor survival. There was also a trend toward less cancer progression as well. Yeah, which is intriguing. And that hypothesis is not the first time that that's been seen. I think that observation, sorry, is something that's been seen elsewhere. And the risk model, what struck me in participating was it's so easy. It's just a simple blood test. It's fibrinogen and D-diamond level, which you proved in this study, very easily stratifies the risk between low risk and high risk. So there's other models around. As you, you know, Of course, there's the corona model, isn't it? Did I say that right? Corona, yep. Corona model. So he's a sort of guru in this field. He has a Corana risk score, which is a little bit more complicated. And then this year in the JCO, there was actually, and we've put in a link to these papers as well, there was a new model, two new models put forward, one called Oncothromb and the other one looked at another's risk score, which were complicated. They actually did next-gen sequencing to look at a panel of mutations in various clotting factors to come up with these risk scores. So they're really quite complicated. But this model is really simple. It's a blood test you can order with the patient's first set of bloods and work out their risk of thromboembolism. Correct. That was really a priority aim for us, wasn't it, in terms of the risk score? There's been a number of risk scores that's been proposed over the last 10 to 15 years based around Alec Karana's work, as you said, but also modifications of that. But two of the limit, well, three of the limitations of those is they didn't stratify well enough within tumour streams. So for many of these risk scores, just by the pure nature of having lung cancer placed you in a high risk, so it didn't have the ability to stratify within tumour subtypes. The second is many of the biomarkers that they use were really only validated within research 
laboratories. They weren't deployed to routine labs, and many of these biomarkers therefore took time or were costly to perform. And really what we needed was a risk score that could be applied real-time in the clinic with the patient in front of the clinician while they were profiling them and preparing them for their anti-cancer therapy. So what this enabled us to do is have a potency within tumour streams for appropriate stratification, but also be able to be performed real-time with rapid turnovers, just like you said, Craig, within four hours of the blood's being sent to the lab so that you could make decisions there and then before starting yeah. therapy. And these tests are routine tests that are financially appropriate and Medicare rebatable and demonstrated the potency we needed for that stratification. So the ASCO thromboembolism prophylaxis and treatment in patients with cancer, the ASCO guidelines were updated this year. I'll put a link to that as well. They added a pixie band to the guidelines based on three randomised controlled trials that showed that with patients with cancer, with thromboembolism, it was safe and effective to use that above low molecular weight heparin. With the caveat, again, it said caution should be used in patients with GI and GU cancers because of their extra bleeding risk if they have mucosal tumours. So I think most people would accept that. So the big challenge in this study was that it was using anoxaparin, a low molecular weight heparin subcutaneously. Can we extrapolate the results of this study, do you think, and start using an oral agent or should we replicate the study with a NOAC? So that's an excellent question, and really I'll answer it in three ways. So the beauty about the study is it wasn't based around which drug we use, but rather could the risk score provide the stratification, which it does. So that risk score will stratify patients independent of what your risk mitigation strategy is, whether it's an oxaparin, a pixaban, or an, you know, a doxapan, it's irrelevant of that. So that's really important. It will still give you that risk stratification. The second thing is, which is what you highlighted, we know with the DOACs and we know this across the class agents of DOACs, there is increased mucosal bleeding with all of those agents. It's to do with the drug metabolism and the prodrug, and we see increased both gastrointestinal and genitourinary and highly vascular bleeding with those agents, which we don't with low molecular weight heparin. So I think there are some advantages of low molecular weight heparin in patients with cancer when we're applying it for clot-preventing therapy, notwithstanding that it is an injection. And that is the reduced rates of mucosal bleeding, no drug-drug interactions and potential IL-6 inhibition, which may have a survival advantage in patients with cancer. And that's why we picked low molecular weight heparin for this trial, as well as it having a long-standing track record in terms of no interference with anti-cancer therapies. That doesn't quite answer your question, but in fact, that's why I think even today that low molecular weight heparin has those advantages. However, for convenience and if the DOACs became PBS reimbursed for preventative therapy in patients with cancer, could we extrapolate? Absolutely, we could in terms of risk stratification. And we know from studies like Cassini and Avert that if we apply appropriate preventative measures using a Pixaban or any of the other DOACs, we can reduce that risk appropriately by applying the drugs. Okay. So do we need to do a study to replicate mm. it? I don't think we need to necessarily invest time, effort and money, but I do think what would be interesting is to perhaps do a head-to-head -head study with low molecular weight heparin and a diet. Yeah, and looking at that survival issue as well. So the editorial from the guru, from Dr. Karana, firstly congratulated the authors, well done, Kate, well done, Craig, on conducting the study. And he said, look, there's really probably no need to do more studies. He says there's now more evidence in the prevention of thromboembolism in cancer patients in the outpatient clinic than there is for using them when they're in hospital. So he, he was really calling for Correct. this intervention 
whichever whichever risk whichever risk score you want to use, we should be thinking about doing this in our patients now. And he actually pointed out, you know, this is where implementation science comes in. How can we translate new treatments like this across tumors across various departments so that the evidence can be implemented in the clinic. So it was a really interesting editorial, I thought. Yeah, correct. I think the devil is in operationalizing good findings from good studies. And can we just roll out utilizing the risk score in a routine, which is not going to cause any harm to any patient, if anything would cause good, wouldn't it, in terms of appropriate risk stratification and then strategically apply strategies to prevent risk. I think what's been nice, Craig, and we've been able to share with each other is the engagement, at least at a national and even at an international level of people who have an interest in this space and have presented it at their in-house journal clubs, have spoken with their internal teams in terms of adoption of both the risk stratification and preventative measures. And that's really exciting to see that actually at a real world level, people are embracing these findings and wanting to apply or operationalise the strategy. Yeah, it's really great. So thank you, Kate, for coming on and having a chat about this. I think it was was an important paper. I probably slipped under the radar because it wasn't just in, you know, breast cancer or bowel cancer. It's really applicable across tumours. It was a pleasure working with you on the study. I was talking to one of your colleagues in regional Australia and your name came up and they said, oh, Kate, she's our fairy godmother because she's so supportive of the regional people. So thank you, Kate, for all you do, for bringing the study out to regional Australia, all the support you provide to the regional people. You know, you're always on the end of the phone if we need some advice about a difficult case. So thank you and looking forward to collaborating on more studies in the future. Absolutely, Craig. Thank you. Thanks, Craig and Kate, for getting stuck into the details for us. Now back to the team. All right. That was amazing. Oh, I thought it was an amazing paper. What did you guys think about that? Well, this comes up, doesn't it? I worry about the acceptability of low molecular weight heparin. Chris, it sort of fits with your common sense oncology. I agree with Kate. I think that low molecular weight heparin is something that people don't particularly like unless they have to. Politic issue of that in the New Zealand situation obviously is the cost, whereby if it's not funded you can't give it and people are unlikely to pay out of pocket for it. But thrombosis in cancer is obviously an important issue. It's a biomarker for poor disease biology. And I you know, noted from your paper, Craig, that those who are in the control group had the high risk score actually did worse. So it was a useful stratifier for people at risk of disease progression as well. Yeah, so I think it's an important area to study. I think it's a well-designed, pragmatic study that you've undertaken. Well done. And I thought it was a really useful paper. And the number needed to treat was perhaps a little lower than I thought as well. So seven people number needed to treat there, which was a good finding there. And happily, the other thing I suppose as well was the rates of bleeding were quite low as well, which was also very reassuring. Yeah. I mean, I think if it's simple tests, it may be something that, you know, we do all these other tests. We do CT scans and PET scans and, you know, various tests. I mean, some people are now ordering, you know, testing for DPD deficiency before they give five a few. So why not test people's and uh, coagulation risk as well? And, you know, whether with them the intervention's appropriate, the low molecular weight heparin subcutaneously, or whether we need to move to oral agents, I think controversial area. But anyway, I think thought-provoking and potentially something that we might incorporate into our daily practice. So you're the author, Craig. What are you going to do next? Well, I think we're discussing target TP2. Yeah, this isn't a definitive paper. No, that's right. It might need to be another study using two different anticoagulants. 
but you'd have to just do it in the high-risk population based on the predictive algorithm. And there's another paper in Impress about the cost savings that we showed because it was a tally trial, right? So decentralized clinical trial and half the patients were recruited in regional Victoria for a trial that they probably wouldn't have wanted to drive to Melbourne for, but they were able to access this trial. I think that's a model that you led really well in Australia, Craig. And I think that model that you've done with teletrials in Australia is a real, an excellent model for other countries to follow. Certainly the talks you gave at AGITG outlining the decentralized clinical trial model have very much become a model for what the Kiwis are trying to do as well. I think for many patients who have to travel long distances to get to centres, that distance is a problem and making academic studies and other studies available for people in non-metropolitan areas is a really important goal. So I think you and your colleagues will be commended on undertaking that. Thank you. So Chris, we've got you up next. I'm sorry, I'm going to get into trouble if I keep the Kiwi vowels happening. At least it's a better accent, I must say, than Hans's accent. So it's one plus. So Chris, I think you're going to talk about Common Sense Oncology, which is a sort of a new initiative, which I think is one of the more impactful things going forward that's emerged out of 2023. Tell us all about that. Well, I think a lot of us would reflect on the fact that the quality of evidence over the course of the last 10 to 15 years in oncology is degraded. The research agenda has very much been increasingly driven by pharma, and I think there's been an arms race amongst pharma for market share, and that has led to a lower and lower standard of evidence which has been produced. You know, certainly when I was a trainee, we were seeing the era of the big oncology cooperative groups. We were getting overall survival in the randomised phase threes. And then there started to be the trend to progression-free survival, and we had you know more and more single-arm phase twos. And now we're getting stuff across the FDA, which has got response rate in a phase one, and is enough for regulatory approval in some places. We know of studies like you know a lot in the pancreas cancer, for example, where you've got a median gain of 1.4 months. And so studies are being overpowered to deliver statistically significant but clinically meaningless results, and that's a real problem. And that's coupled with an increasing cost of these agents as well, which is going up and up. So we're in the midst of a value crisis where the gains you're getting are smaller and the costs we're paying are higher. And, you know, I think we need a reset in the values of oncology, getting back to a time where we prioritise patient outcomes that matter. And the outcomes that matter to people who've got incurable disease are living better and living longer. And the surrogates around tumor control on the scan, which is progression-free survival, are actually not that important to people. What they do value is living longer and living better. So there's a group of oncologists gathered in Kingston, Canada last year. Demi Karakios from Australia, me from New Zealand, and many others from around the world, Bashar Gawali, and led by the extraordinary Chris Booth, together to have a discussion about this problem and to look at a potential solution to that. And out of the common sense oncology movement was born. And now we're going to hear a few highlights from CJ's chat with Chris Booth. A lot of your work has been commenting and analysing um, you know, FDA policies, drug access issues in the US, for example. Canada is to the US what New Zealand is to Australia, right? How is your work as a Canadian received by your American neighbours? Yeah, I must admit, a lot of our work is focused on kind of the global policy space. We've certainly done a lot of work looking at FDA regulatory decisions and value, but 
Probably the biggest um, or the most meaningful work in that space that I've done has come from work at the global level with the WHO Essential Medicine List, which really has connected me with a network of, of colleagues, of, of academics, oncologists, and investigators from around the world, from both high-income countries and lower- and middle-income countries who care about these issues, and have led to a number of really, really dynamic, productive, and fun collaborations where we've explored these issues about access, equity, value, and outcomes in different health systems. And then from a global point of view, I had the distinct privilege of doing two months of my training in the South Island of New Zealand. And I also spent several months on sabbatical living in South India about seven or eight years ago. So I've really been lucky to learn from colleagues in health systems around the world in some regards. So I was asked by a journalist in the US a couple of months ago, who was you know, kind of flabbergasted when I told him the story of cancer care, because most people don't realize that we have some of these challenges. They assume that everything we do has transformative benefits. And he asked me, he said, how do we get in this situation? I thought about that very deeply over the last few months. And the conclusion I've come to in my current thinking is that we've landed in some of these problems because of a convergence of two very powerful factors. And those factors are hope and money. The hope is the idea that our patients are hoping for good outcomes. They're looking for treatments that will help them. The doctors, the nurses, the policymakers, the politicians, everyone's hoping for the best, wanting to offer something. Everyone's intentions are in the right place. So there's a very, very strong driver of hope that I think sometimes may lead us and our patients in the system to deliver treatment that has small benefits with the idea that we're hoping it'll do more than maybe it really will. So that's hope. But on the other side, it's money. And it's not, I don't think, as simple as doctors getting consulting fees from pharma and then prescribing low-value care. But the entire cancer care delivery system and research ecosystem in many parts of the world is driven by money that comes from the sales and research of cancer medicines. And this is just the reality of the economic model that we live in. And the fact that pharmaceutical companies, as you well know, largely dictate the clinical trials agenda in our field. So there's money flowing into hospitals and trials groups. There's research dollars going to institutions. In some parts of the world, um, not in Canada, but in some parts of the world, the hospitals and the physicians make more money through markups from their chemotherapy. So at every step of the care pathway, money has a huge, huge influence on where things are going. That's it for now. To listen to the full interview, look out for the episode exploring common sense oncology in more detail called The OJC Meets Chris Booth. So that's inspiring, eh? Yeah, it's fantastic. So I think, as I said, this is perhaps going to be one of the more impactful initiatives I think it has the potential to be really impactful. Where we really need to get to, though, is a stage at which the regulators take these endpoints on board and start to demand them for registration for agents. And I think until we get that, then we're going to have persistence of these surrogate measures. But as a community, we can demand that people designing the trials incorporate these important endpoints. And I think that responsibility sits with us all. I despair, actually, at, at where we're going, which is a nice segue, Craig, though you wanted to introduce me, into the trial that I wanted to talk about, because I think the destiny trials are really interesting science. So there's a trastuzumab deruxetan being aimed at, so an antibody conjugate aimed at HER2, moving into the HER2 low space. Really interesting science, lots of arguments about why it's a good idea, what's actually happening. But the reason this is a 2022 trial that I'm presenting in 2023 is the prices in New Zealand at least has recently halved, but it's still in the tens of thousands of dollars a dose. 
which means that, you know, that science is just not accessible to anybody. So I despair at where we are as a community when I'm having conversations with patients about things that might help on whatever the measure is, but you'll need to sell your house and then sell your house again in three months' time, please, and sell your house again in three months' time. You know, it's ridiculous. Well, let's get into it. Let's explain the paper and the science. So I think this is, you know, a hot new compound, right, these conjugated antibodies, and it's a good example of And some people have even said, you know, we've got chemo, we've got radiotherapy, we've got immunotherapy, targeted therapies, and now we've got conjugated antibodies. So let's go over this paper, Kate. Okay, so look, this paper was, it's Destiny 04, so this is in the women who had previously had treatment for metastatic disease. Two-thirds were ER positive, a third were ER negative. They were all HER2 1 or 2 plus. They had to be FISH negative, and they were given either... Which which negative? FISH negative. FISH negative. FISH, good. (laughs) FISH negative. Or quiche, as it was in coughs back in the day. <laughs> quiche negative. <laughs> Which always makes me laugh because no man eats quiche. So they looked at trastuzumab deruxetab versus uh, clinician's choice. In the clinician's choice, there were some sensible people who got capecitabine and paclitaxel. There was some gemcitabine. There was some expensive paclitaxel and a myriad of other things. Median progression-free survival went from 5.1 in the control arm to 9.9 months and OS from... Almost a similar metric, 16.8 months to 23 months. In the abstract, however, they describe 12% of patients having a significant pneumonitis and 0.8% having grade 5 events. I don't know how everybody else feels about the word grade 5 events, grade 5 being death, of course. Well, that's an American it's manageable toxicity there. Isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. You know, these are individual women who joined this trial. I think we should acknowledge their existence. Look, I'm fascinated by these antibody conjugates. I don't think they're targeted therapy. I think they're really clever delivery systems because we haven't been able to prove that these HER2 low people actually use their HER2 ness particularly. So we're not turning off an on switch. We're just got something we can lock some chemotherapy into. And I'd love to see some that don't cause pneumonitis. So Cadsila can cause pneumonitis, Sazatazumab govotecan, also very difficult to say, can cause pneumonitis. And I'd love to see some that weren't as expensive for a four-month PFS benefit. You know, this is not curing the cancer. Chris? So for starters, I think the reason they make the chemical name so unpronounceable is so that you use the brand name for starters. That's an important point to get out there. Second thing is, Kate, what do you know about the management of the pneumonitis? I mean, with IO, for example, it's quite manageable. What's it like with this? Yeah, so since these became available and in trials, there is mandated HRCT on quite frequent sort of two to three month basis. And then corticosteroids rescues most people, but you do have to discontinue, you know, there's a whole palaver. You have to discontinue a lot of people early. It's a lot of extra resource poured in to prevent, to treating. You can't prevent it. And it's not as rare. You know, what is it? Now that we're comfortable using IO, pneumonitis rates are actually vanishingly rare. Yeah. I don't know, 5%? Really? Yeah, yeah I yeah, think so. Patient, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I suppose your lung patients are probably a bit more sick than my patients. But, you know, 12% or 1% dead. I know when IO first came, it was, you know, everything you went to, you had big conversations about pneumonitis and how we were going to prevent it or what we we're going to do about it. I think it's become less of an issue. This is tied into all of the trials and in all the licenses mandating that you are doing HRCTs and responding to them appropriately. The pneumonitis is treatable though? Yes. Yes, but not necessarily 100% treatable. Yeah. So treatable with steroids or and withdrawal of the drug. Do you think there's value in doing those regular CTs or really just do one if you're concerned? No, part of the problem is that the patients actually, by the time they're symptomatic, they're quite sick. 
So you remember back in the day when we did all of that, I don't treat testicular cancer anymore, but it's a little bit like bleomycin lung. By the time the person's unwell, they're really unwell. It's an idiopathic thing, so the lung patients, for example, aren't more inclined to get it. People with COPD, no other major risk factors for it, well, not dose-related. No, the interesting thing is the rates of, now I won't be able to remember off the top of my head, but the rates in the cholangiocarcinoma trial were the pneumonitis rates were higher again. So is that because they've had gemcitabine before? That was one of the purported mechanisms. Is that something else? You know, I think that's curious. So I think there will be more data coming, I suspect, because there's going to be lots of people on these drugs. But no, I don't think we know enough yet. Chris, I think with some of the other antibody conjugates, there was some issue about dose and the relationship with pneumonitis that's been seen in other drugs in development as well. So maybe dose issue, it's a frequency of dose issue as well. I think some of them have gone to more extended scheduling. So we'll see in the fullness of time. But yeah, it's an interesting field. As Kate said, they're not curing people and they're expensive. So we will see. We hope you enjoy the return of the OJC. Don't forget to listen to part two. This is Rachel Babin and this is the Oncology Journal Club podcast.